Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship, where we get to talk horses. We're your hosts. I'm John Hare. And I'm Renee Hare. Thanks for listening and sharing our horsemanship journey. On today's show, we talk to horseman Jim Thomas of Bar T Horsemanship. Jim has trained many BLM Mustangs, and as a clinician, he will be presenting at the BHP Summit in Durango, Colorado. Jim believes in training through understanding, not confrontation. And an expression that I use a lot of times, if you can keep your horse from putting his boxing gloves on during a training session, you and the horse are going to come out winners in the end. But if either one of you ever puts your boxing gloves on, then it goes to a fight and you might as well quit because both of you will lose. Before we get to Jim, we'll talk about what we've been doing with our horses. Okay. Yes. We competed at a ranch versatility trail trial. Well, you competed. That's right. You know, we've we've had a number of different trainers on the show, and one of them in particular, Barbara Schulte, is a champion at competition. And we got her advice about competing. And did you follow that advice? None of it. I've come to the conclusion <laughs> that Almost half of the advice you never follow doesn't work out for you. (laughs) Anyway, we heard about the competition a little bit late and decided on short notice that we would go. I hadn't been riding Jesse other than just on trail rides, and I wanted to compete on her. She's my 17-year-old Foundation Quarter Horse mare, and we just took off and went for it. We did, and I, I didn't decide until we got there whether I would actually enter or not. Dusty had had a pretty bad cough, and we'd laid him off for a few weeks. I wanted to get him out, ride him around a little bit, and see if that cough reoccurred or not. So when we got there, and I saw what a pretty place it was to ride in, (laughs) I said, I think I'll just ride today and not compete. So that's what I did. I was good crew backup, though. You were, yes. <laughs> and uh, we went into the warm-up arena. It was a nice day, and they have a really It was nice... a stinking hot day. Well, it was... <laughs> but we were amongst the pistachio trees. Oh, it, it was, was a beautiful place. At least three degrees cooler than it was <laughs> here. It was only 104 instead of 107. <laughs> they, uh, we competed in... What was it? We Trail. Com- we competed in the trail trial in first and second year because of we haven't competed in ranch that often. And then we competed in the regular competition in the versatility. Right. And there were probably, I think I want to say about eight in each class. Mm-hmm. And we came away with two fourth place finishes. In one, we actually tied for second and they had a flip off. So we ended up with the fourth place ribbon. In both of the classes, one of the toughest things to deal with was trying to remember the course. It is, I know. They're a big it arena. It was kind of complicated. But, you know, it kind of follows a flow, The, the mm. and it's not so hard to follow the course per se, but to know what gate you're supposed to be in right. between the obstacles. So we had to be on a left lead at one point, we had to be on a right lead at the other at a canter. And then we had to trot through some places. We had And specifically extended trot, so she wanted to see you post. Yeah. So we really don't have that too much. But anyway. Oh, you did good. We did all right. Yeah. And then, you know, and any time you compete, it kind of shows holes and stuff that you need to work on. And that's a really that's a really good benefit. But you really 
you know, competition is a whole different level of horsemanship. And I think if you're going to do it, it's probably best to take it a little bit more serious than we do from time to time. It can be a very long, frustrating, boring day. You sit around and wait a lot, and then you have your couple of minutes in the arena, and then you sit and wait some more. I don't find it very attractive. (laughs) I think sometimes we'd just rather be out riding our horses. Yeah. But that's what we've been up to, and we'd like to hear from what you've been up to with your horses, and uh, if you got something fun and interesting that you're doing with them, drop us a line. You can always reach us at john at woepodcast.com. We love hearing from you. And now from Bar T Horsemanship, our conversation with Jim Thomas. And by the way, he's a very funny guy. He cracked me up the whole time. Today we're speaking with Jim Thomas, a horseman from Bar T Horsemanship in Pittsburgh, North Carolina. Welcome to the show, Jim. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I am really excited to get a chance to talk to you guys. You're part of the Best Horse Practices Summit that's happening in uh, October in Durango, Colorado. So we're really excited to talk to you today about some of the things you're going to present there. But first, I'd kind of like to get to know a little bit more about you, maybe your history in horses and horsemanship or just your general life history, too. So did you grow up on the East Coast? Yep, I have been on the East Coast pretty much my whole life, except for times that Uncle Sam decided he wanted to relocate <laughs> me otherwhere. Uh, I've been around horses my whole life, on and off. Uh, of course, during my time in the military, there would be places that I couldn't have horses or time I couldn't have horses. But uh, it, it's kind of like your old home place. You always try to drift back to something that you're comfortable and near and dear to you. So yeah. uh, probably from 10, 10 years on, i have had horses and have been involved with horses in one way or another. Was your family into horses at that time? My dad, uh, he was in the military as well, Uh and he had a strong desire. Nobody in his family had ever had horses, but uh, I think it was a desire for him, and that was, of course, back in the 60s. And he got into horses, and he really enjoyed them as well, and, and actually rolled into kind of a uh, a family affair. I had three sisters and they all had horses. I had horses myself and my mom had a horse. My dad had a horse. So they, they were always there. There was always horses around the ranch. And were you both in the same branch of the service? Yes. Both of us were in the army. Well, both, well thank you for that. <laughs> By the way, we appreciate sure. the, you guys fighting sure. for us. Your dad didn't grow up around horses, but he had a, a strong interest was horsemanship a part of that? Was he learning from somebody, or, and, and did you learn most of your knowledge from him? Well, um, it's funny you say that because, you know, sometimes we, we try to keep things that we have learned in the past that we don't want everybody else to know or the way we <laughs> learned it and the way we experienced We We try to kind of keep that in a in a little box covered up. And um, I, I, I guess I'm kind of, I'm not going to say proud of what I learned about horses at a younger age. But I will say it was an experience that I can say I've been on both sides of the fence when you say the word horseman and horsemanship. We were on the East Coast and pretty much all the way across across the United States and in the world that people really didn't know a whole lot about horsemanship. And, And there were some special guys out there that you know, you can go back 5,000 years and there were still special guys that knew a really good way to work with horses. Mm-hmm. But 
I was taught uh, to work with a horse, get a bigger stick, get a bigger rope, and do whatever you needed to do necessary to cause the horse to submit, which kind of makes me really appreciate the direction that I've gone now because I have been on the other side, and I saw how severe and how rough and how demanding, you know, humans are. Right. And, you know, we, we were successful at it, so we thought, well, this must be the right way. Mm-hmm. And with a lot of change, was there some incident or some mm-hmm. particular horse that kind of sparked the change, that changed your direction to start looking for a, a different answer? Yeah, um, believe it or not, it, it was. You know, in the in the 80s, we were beginning to see just a little bit on TV and you know, the VHS age had come out and, uh-huh. you know, Ray, Ray Hunt, actually, uh, I can use his name in the sense of he did, he was traveling around quite a bit in the United States and he had come to North Carolina a few times mm-hmm. and had the opportunity uh, to hear and know a little bit about him. And I'd seen something uh, that he had done and I brought it back home. With just a little bit of an idea, we had a horse that was really difficult to get in a trailer. And I remember I'd given that horse uh, as a six, six-month-old six little filly. I'd given her to my daughter uh, for a present, and the horse was just determined just not to get in a trailer. Well, we used whatever means necessary to get the horse in the trailer. And I tried something a little different one day. I was like, you know, it's time this horse has got this, got to get this together. Uh, we can't just keep having these fights time and time and time again. So I tried just a little different approach in trying to understand the perspective from the horse and by George, it worked. And, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, I I had no bumps on my head and I had no blisters in my hands and, you know, there were no whips around or extra ropes or anything. And, and the horse went in the trailer and the horse was relaxed and, I think from that point forward, it was kind of a light bulb that came on, low voltage, I'll say. It was really dim. (laughs) And built over years. (laughs) Yeah. As time grew, we started to get more and more and more voltage, and that light just kept getting brighter and brighter and brighter and seeing really how easy horsemanship can be and working with horses when you start taking their perspective into what you're doing. So then you started developing this and where was the, uh, cause I understand you started dozens of BLM Mustangs. Where was this in your, your road to horsemanship? Well, fortunately this was before the Mustang day. Uh, because I'd not be here to talk to you today had, uh, <laughs> had I taken that old approach uh, with the Mustangs because they are, and I don't say this in a negative way at all, but they're a very strong-willed animal, and they're an animal that knows what has kept them alive, mm-hmm. and they are very determined, you know, to control that situation the best they can. And if there's anything that would humble I think the old style training in horses, a Mustang would humble that person. Right. And so that was actually probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years, 15 years before uh, I started working with Mustangs. And the Mustangs just kind of came about. I was 
you know, had uh, trained several horses in this area for friends. And I started hearing all the, the commotion about Mustangs. And this was just, you know, right at the start of the 2000s, 2001 and two. And people were saying, well, you know, you can get these Mustangs, but they'll kill you. They're, you know, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're crazy horses and they're this and that. And I'm somebody that kind of will, will pick up on a challenge or an opportunity. So I said, well, let's go see what that's about. So I went and adopted uh, my first Mustang, I think about 2005 or six, 2005. I adopted my first Mustang and went with the, the, the true horsemanship approach as in offer it, let's see what happens, offer it, let's see what happens. And lo and behold, um, I think in probably two weeks, uh, we ride that horse around with no problem whatsoever. You know, it put a really big, solid nail in the concept of, you know, horsemanship does work. And understanding the perspective from the horse opposed to the human it really does work. What were you doing with that Mustang? I mean, how were you, when you say that you were kind of seeing if it would show it something and, and see where it would go, what does that mean exactly? Well, what work? If we kind of take the idea, you know, most of the time in, in the old gym, we'll go to the old gym <laughs> and the old gym says, I'm going to make you do a, Right. And whatever that may be, you know, it could be something as subtle as, you know, turn your head and look at me, mm-hmm. or it could be back up or go forward, go left or right or whatever the case. Wasn't a, let me coerce you into it. Let me lead you into it. Let me draw you into this idea. It was a, I'm going to make you do that. Right. And you'll, you'll talk to some folks and they'll say, well, I'm successful doing that. But then you'll talk to that person long enough and you'll find that of all the horses that they worked with, that they have a high number of failed horses. Well, that horse just couldn't cut my program or that horse just couldn't make it for what I was doing. And, you know, you go back and you think that and says, well, you know what? It really wasn't that horse that couldn't cut the program. It was you or the teacher you couldn't teach the ABCs to the horse and the horse was willing to learn. He just had a little different learning style. And I think sometimes some horses have a, a, a set of protection, uh, a set of values that are just a little stronger than other horses. So they're just like, no, I'm not going to submit quite as easy. Right. So then a lot of trainers, well, they just give up because the submit thing is not working. So with this gal, I just kind of went with the idea of, let me see if I can plant a seed here, put a little bit of water on it, give it some time, give it a little sunshine (laughs) and see if it'll cultivate, see if it'll grow. And it could be no more than maybe the first time that I'll put a rope on her that as I pick up and put a little tension in the rope, instead of just pulling back hard and saying face to me, I put just enough nagging pressure on her to where she says, how can I make this go away (laughs) in a thought opposed to it being so aggressive that she felt like she needed to fight against it to keep from being pulled over the cliff. Instead of a predator, you're being a leader. Well, you know, it's kind of like, here's this carrot over here 
Now, you know, vision is not really a carrot, but it's it's a little bit of pressure with a, a rope around the neck, and it's just saying, try this, try mm-hmm. this. And maybe if that horse didn't any more than just take one ear and focus it on you, and you give that pressure back, and then you ask it again, and you get that ear, and maybe you get a little bit of eye, and then you give mm-hmm. it back. And, you know, in three or four of those, and, and I'm saying in, in three or four of those in 30 seconds, you put a little pressure and the horse is looking at you. Right. And right. another minute of this, you put a little pressure and the horse now has crossed his feet over and now staring at you. To me, that's true horsemanship versus right. the old style, the old gym. Okay, let me get this rope wrapped around me. I'm going to sit back <laughs> real hard on this rope and I'm going to jerk this horse over to where she's looking at me so she understands. When I pull on this rope, she better look. Right. So and does that that make sense? That does. And when you're giving that little pressure, is it are you gradually increasing that pressure, or are you just staying at that little pressure until you get the the result that you're looking for? Well, you know, I I found that when you increase the pressure, it's just like if you and I got in a conversation, John. Well, let's change that. John and Renee got in a conversation. Uh oh. <laughs> and um, I, I use a three word deal when, when um, I'm working with my clients in levels of pressure with a horse. And those three words are suggest, ask, and tell. Uh-huh. So anything that my horse does not know, he has no idea what I'm doing. I can never do more than ask. Mm. So a suggestion for John to Renee might be, you know, it'd really be nice if I had a glass of water. (laughs) Now, that's not a direct comment to Renee at all. It's a suggestion. Okay. Okay. Now, Renee, you know, being the perfect partner that I'm sure she is. (laughs) Yes, indeed. She says, well, I I was headed to the kitchen anyway. (laughs) <laughs> to get me a glass of water, I'll pick John one up. I would but do then that. Maybe yeah. Renee, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe Renee was kind of tied up in what she was doing. And she said, well, I know John wants a glass of water, but I, I'm kind of busy right here. I'll, I'll get it in a minute. So a commercial comes on, and it was a program that Renee was interested in. John would look at you and says, well, Renee, would you get me a glass of water while you're in the kitchen? Now, is that would would you call that a suggest or an ask? That's the ask. That's the ask. Right. So Renee probably would have no problem whatsoever when she walked in the kitchen to get whatever she was after to bring you a glass of water or even to get up and go get a glass of water for you. Right. Because you were really involved in what you were doing. But had you went to Renee just right off the bat and you hollered at her and says, Renee, go get me a glass of water right now. That's Probably the, where would that glass of water wind that, up? That wouldn't have worked. <laughs> That's the tell. <laughs> oh, you would go get the glass of water and it'd be poured on top of his head. There you go. <laughs> so if, if we look at the horse, the tail would be me sitting back as hard as I could on that rope and snatching that horse's head around. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that created an immediate defensive action on the horse's part. So the horse got highly alert, he got highly agitated, anxiety went up, all these things went to happening. Heart rate went up, respiration went up, 
And now this one, he's looking at me. I got what I wanted, but I, I may have messed things up. Right. But if I just kept that little suggestion going on there, and that horse finally looked over at me with that little bit of suggestion, and that's all it ever was, and never caused that horse to get bothered. And mm. an expression that I use a lot of times, if you can keep your horse from putting his boxing gloves on during a <laughs> training session, you and the horse are going to come out winners in the end. Right. That's a great but thought. But if either one of you ever puts your boxing gloves on, then it goes to a fight, and you might as well quit because both of you will lose. Yeah. yeah. You So you trained that one Mustang, and then did you train domestic horses uh, alongside the Mustangs that you were working with? Uh, oh, yeah. 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 I had uh, done several domestic horses because at that time I was still in the military. Okay. So th this was a, a free time in the evening kind of deal. And so I was taking in horses, you know, just one at a time mm -hmm. during uh, my last few years while I was in the military because I didn't have a lot of time to devote. But the more I did that, the more I was like, yeah, this is actually pretty easy when you think about things. Now, I, I'll be here to tell you that from what I knew in 2005 to what I know now, I look at myself and I wondered how I was ever successful <laughs> with a Mustang then. And I'm wow. sure from what I know now in 2025, I like, how in the, in the world did I ever get anywhere <laughs> with a horse, you know, in 2017? I love the three-step process of the suggest, ask, and tell. Do you think there's a major difference in how a Mustang reacts to that and how a domestic horse reacts to that? Probably across the board it is, because you'll find Mustangs that you can be more, and I'll say this only because I see different trainers, you can find some Mustangs that you can be more aggressive with than others. And you can find some Mustangs that even a suggestion, the slightest suggestion almost blows their top. Mm. And, and I guess, you know, because the Mustang is a mother nature selected process and mother nature has put the hardy that is the survivors and the horse that is right. the most reactive is the survivor. So you can see in the Mustang that everything that you're going to do, even from when, when you first start round pin in a Mustang, you never have to lift an arm. You right. can almost with your hand beside you, just raise your hand just a little bit and you'll get a, a reaction from mm -hmm. the Mustang. Wow. Um, I've had Mustangs and, you know, just recently this summer, uh, we had a little Mustang. The very first time I walked, I have a 50-foot round pin with mm -hmm. six-foot rails. I was not even looking at the horse. I was, we had just put her in the round pin the day before. I walked into the round pin, was walking straight across the open the gate on the other side. So the horse was about 30 feet from me. Uh -huh. When I got center of the round pin, she lined herself up straight to a six-foot rail and jumped it and jumped out. Oh, my God. I was God. never even looking. Wow. <laughs> you can look at that <laughs> in the sense of the fear factor and the desire to flee was so strong that even a six-foot fence on a 14-hand horse was not going to be a problem. 
That's mm-hmm. amazing. Wow. You've got a great hunter-jumper prospect then, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then the next Mustang you could walk in there with, and you might have to set loose with, with a bunch of firecrackers just to get that horse to move around. Right. So, you know, I, I say Mustangs are just like Mr. Potato Heads, if you remember that when we were kids, that yeah. you never know what you're going to get because mother nature built something with a whole bunch of parts (laughs) and you might have the the strongest flight response in the world or you might have that horse that i don't know if i'll ever get this horse to walk out it is so relaxed and lazy yeah and we're in domestic breeding you know we we have tried to find that middle of the road in the breeding process so this that's where you see your really big differences they're still going to be a bit more reactive to things just because, you know, their entire life, it's, if that bird fluttered in limb, I'm supposed to turn and look at it because it could mean that something is lurking beyond that tree. Right. Yeah. And where do the Mustangs that you get in North Carolina, what area of the country do they generally come from? Everywhere. Um, when BLM does their gathers and, you know, the very first Mustang I adopted, Reba, she came from Oregon. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I adopted her right at the, you know, back, that was back when they did true auctions uh, for the BLM adoptions. So you, it was a true bid process on the horse. And did you have to go to Oregon to pick her up? No, no. She was actually, and the way the BLM does is they'll round these horses up, they'll bring them in off the ranges. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's a you know another topic that that you could get into it's uh, about just controlling herd populations right. they bring them in the holding facilities they do a selection process they group horses up and there'll be horses grouped from you know new mexico and nevada and, and oregon and utah and idaho and just everywhere so when there is a truckload that comes east when you start looking at the uh, uh the bill of laden on these guys they're from everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of folks say, well, are Nevada horses better than Oregon horses, better right. than Wyoming <laughs> horses? And and I can't say they are. Some people will tell you they are that's had one or two. Mm-hmm. I think we have number 42 here right now, uh, Mustangs that we've started for the public. Wow. Uh, that's one thing I do keep up with is how many Mustangs. Oh, and we've great. had them from all 10 of the states. And there's really no rhyme or reason as to a better horse from one place or another. Where did Medicine Man end up? Let's see. Medicine Man actually is still in North Carolina. Oh, good. Uh, he's on uh, a friend of ours, oh, I guess probably 30 miles from here. Right. And he's a nice little trail horse. Medicine Man, of course, was sold um, after the, the makeover. Medicine Medicine Man went to a little, I think she was 8 or 10 years old. She kept him till she was about 12 or 13 years old to where she just, okay, I'm not in the horses anymore. Boys <laughs> and sports have taken over. Mm-hmm. So then he actually went to a neighbor of theirs. Excellent. Well, I, what I'm always fascinated in is what people see in a horse that they like. You said that when you bid on Reba, it was a true auction format of the BLM. You had a lot of horses to choose from. Why did you, what characteristics did you see in Reba that made you want to bid on her? Oh, that's pretty good. 
So I'll give you the idea. They had 120 horses that day, and I, I can replay this whole day just like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. They had 120 horses, and I went through all 120 just looking, looking, looking. And I picked three horses out uh, as, okay, This is these, these are my top three picks. Now, Reba was the top pick, uh-huh. but I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm six foot four. So I was looking for a good sized Mustang. You know, your average Mustang's about 14, one or two. Right. And so I was like, you know, I don't have this. I need to be on a big horse ego. I just need to be on a horse that my feet aren't going to hit the stumps <laughs> when I walk down a trail. So, you know, what I had picked out, everything was at least 15 and a half hands. One of the things that caught me about her, one, she's a big red dun, and mm-hmm. most of your Mustangs are all going to be bays or sorrels. And at that time, they weren't bringing a whole lot of color uh, in the sense of of paints or grays or uh, palominos or anything. So she was one of the few horses that had any color. But she was standing in the middle of a pen of about 25 horses, and she had designated her space (laughs) she was not bothering a horse in that whole group but not one horse bothered her so she wasn't the bully that i'm just going to run everybody around all the time she was kind of like i know and people still say this you know she was the queen and (laughs) she was in in the middle of that and she had all the confidence in the world you know she wasn't bothered by all the people she wasn't sniffing and running and blowing and snorting and this and that. She just said, this is my space. It's in the middle of the arena or the round pen. Really, the furthest I can get away from any, you know, person without having to continue to move and move and move. Right. But this is where I can be comfortable. And I just kind of I liked her view on how she perceived things. And were your other two picks mares? The other two, uh, they both were mares, too, okay. uh, but they were horses that had a little bit of color. Okay. Uh, they weren't quite as uh, tall as her, but they were stockier. They were built a little stronger. They were about 15 and a half hands. But as when the auction started, the other two came up first. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, that's the one I really want. I really want that one. So... I let those two horses go because I was so set that's who I wanted. And now I'm sitting here, and it's like, okay, now this could get right ridiculous. This could get <laughs> stupid. You're committed now. I came here with a trailer, and you know that's the worst sign a person going to look a horse to do is bring a trailer. You know, that just tells the world, oh, he's here to buy. Right. I can take advantage of it. They started the bid process. Fortunately, I had a checkbook opposed to cash, so I was like, you know, I'll let my butt write any check. I'll worry about tomorrow how I'm going to cover it. <laughs> so she went to a whopping $385. Oh, my gosh. She was, wow. she was the highest of any horse for the day. She was a high-selling horse of the day. Wow. It's still a pretty a good deal. <laughs> oh, a heck of oh, right now. I mean, she's she's worth a half a million dollars to me, and uh, and that's on a bad day. <laughs> but um, you know, we got her in the trailer, started home, and a Reba McIntyre song came on. <laughs> and I had no idea what her name was going to be, and when Reba McIntyre came on, and you know, redheaded Reba, 
Mm-hmm. And I had this big red dun back there. I says, you know, that's an easy one. And that, that was her name. <laughs> Sweet. Wow, that's great. Well, that's a great story. Yeah, she's about 14 now, and she is a lesson horse. I would hate to think how many people she's taught uh, from from total beginners all the way up to, um, you know, some pretty decent riders and just being able to advance their skills. She's Good. here to stay. She's here for life. <laughs> She's a keeper. <laughs> yep. now, my kids um, are for sale. Everything <laughs> else in my world's for sale, but, but Reba's here to stay. The, uh, the, the Best Horse Practices Summit is, uh, where did your interest in evidence-based horsemanship come from? I had an opportunity. Well, let me go ahead and go to the very beginning of that because it's, it's pretty easy. And then it's funny how it came together. Okay. But about oh, five or six years ago, maybe five years ago, and I can't remember when Stephen Martin put the book out. Mm-hmm. But uh, I had a client that was here. I was working with her and her Mustang. And she was telling me about she had gone to the Californios. No, it wasn't that one. It was. There's a cold starting demonstration that they did up in uh, Northern California, okay. in uh, maybe in Paso Robles. Oh, I think that Horseman Reunion. Does that sound familiar? The Horseman's Reunion. That was it. And but she had gone out to that, and Martin and Steve, Martin Black and uh, Dr. Steve Peters, gave a presentation on um, EPH, evidence-based horsemanship. Mm-hmm. And she came back, and as I was working with her horse and working with her one day, she started sharing with me the information that she had gathered from those guys. And I was like, this is so cool. And she <laughs> was explaining, you know, just little tidbits right. uh, of the book and the presentation. And I'm like, you're kidding. And, you know, everything, and you can... You know, you can watch your, your good horsemen right now, and they always look for the lick and chew, look for the relaxation, look for the try, reward mm-hmm. the slightest effort. But you didn't know why. You just mm-hmm. knew that's what you were supposed to do. And I'm kind of one of those, why, why, why? <laughs> you know, I, I still have that five, uh, that four-year-old mentality in why Why does the sun come up? Why does it go down and, right. and all that? So. When she was sharing that with me, it it just made this light bulb that I had kind of in a little simmer going on. It just like started starving for energy. <laughs> and I'm like, I have got to know more. So I had already set up an opportunity to go work with Martin in Florida. Before then, I didn't know he had anything to do with EBH. So I went down and I did a clinic. And this, yeah, this was probably five years ago. So Martin, he talks a little bit about EBH and then started putting some things uh, in perspective about it. So then I brought Martin to North Carolina to do a clinic. And while he was here, he was like, hey, Jim, why don't you come up to Pennsylvania? Steve's going to be here and we're doing a, uh, a seminar. You talking about hook, line and sinker. <laughs> you were I'll in. Be <laughs> in on that. I was in. So I, I called my daughter. She was living in Florida. I said, get up here. We're going to Pennsylvania. So she came up, we took off, we went to Pennsylvania for the EBH clinic up there. And from that point forward, I have sat in the, in in the box for Stephen Martin based on EBH and EBH. I can honestly say 
has made sense to everything that I've learned and why it is working and why it doesn't work. So all the things that I've been doing for the past 30 years, you know, that I would struggle with, EVH put the answer right there. Well, that's why it didn't work, Jim, and that's why it didn't work, <laughs> and that's why it didn't work. And, you know, all for varied reasons. But the more you understand the thought process of the horse and how he perceives things and, and how he associates things, when you start putting all that together, it's really simple to understand why this works and why that doesn't work and vice versa. And we're really looking forward to, to going to the Durango event. It and, is. And, you know, a lot of folks I'll refer to them. I said, well, you know, you at least order the book. And they'll get the book and they'll say, well, I got through three pages of it. It was just too technical. It's pretty technical. <laughs> uh, and I tell them, I says, continue to read. I keep says, because going. as you get deeper in the book, little light switches will keep coming on and coming on. Or little light bulbs right. will just keep on popping on and on. And then you'll start having associations. Oh, that's what that means 14 pages ago. <laughs> I've heard the DVD is a, is a little bit easier to follow, but I we haven't. We haven't got our hands on the DVD yet. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is a bit easier, but I think what you will find more than anything is they do the presentation, and then there's open discussion within the class. Mm -hmm. Someone from the class will say, well, my horse does this and this and this, and when I do this, why does that work? Steve will jump right in and go to the chart and says, well, this is how it processes through the brain. Martin goes over here and gives it in layman terms, and it's like, oh, wow. And <laughs> so you, you just have all these epiphanies all day long, and that's what just makes it so great. What are people going to take away from your presentation in Durango? I hope what they take away is that whatever you do with the horse, if your intentions are right and your energy is right, the horse is going to forgive every wrong thing that you do, and he will gain from every right thing that you do. And that as difficult as we think it is to understand the learning styles and the learning processes of the horse, it's actually mm -hmm. quite simple. Because I think a lot of times when we do finally agree to, okay, I need to think like a horse, we take that too literal. And we said, well, I can't think like a horse. I'm not a horse. And, you know, in reality, you aren't. But we are intelligent enough to think like the horse, just like when we work with a two-year-old child, that we can, and I don't mean this in a bad way, we can dummy down mm -hmm. the thing that we want to teach so that two-year-old child can understand. So right. we can dummy down the thing that I want to teach to the horse Right. So the horse can understand it in his ability versus trying to understand it in a, you know, a 58 year old mind ability. Mm -hmm. And if you get the person, are you trying to get him to think like a horse instead of what so many people do, which is try to put human characteristics inside that horse and going, oh, well, he's just afraid of the trailer because it's painted the wrong color inside or he had a traumatic <laughs> exactly. experience, you know, and they put human emotions onto the horse and they kind of get themselves in trouble that way. Exactly. You know, and I run into those experiences every single day and I, I run into things that, that people, when they do, they do try to perceive it. 
but then but they perceive it in the way that things that would make a difference to us as humans and it's kind of like what you're saying there john instead of no perceive it totally like the horse the horse doesn't care about color the horse doesn't care about the smell mm-hmm. and you know the horse cares about two things is it safe right and is it comfortable and if, if he can get those two needs met you know he's like i'm cool with it but if we can ever associate anything negative with what we want him to do then he's going to start every time he associates oh that gets this that gets this right and we see and the trailer's the best example we scold the horse at the trailer well that's just like the horse will stepping into the trailer and as soon as he gets there he hits electric fence yeah and, and a scolding it is an electric fence to the horse i don't want to go there but then we're like dummy don't you understand i'll quit doing this if you'll get on the trailer <laughs> and all the horses saying well the closer i get the more i keep getting hit <laughs> or the more yeah. pressure I keep feeling and it just keeps escalating and the human is like gosh it's so simple just get on the trailer and I'll quit beating on you <laughs> when you explain it like that it's it's hard to figure out you know <laughs> what you, the horse gets the horse gets whacked on when he gets closer to the trailer and then he doesn't want to go in the trailer and we're going why doesn't he want to go in the trailer <laughs> well because you're whacking him <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, people can understand the concept of the electric fence. Right. If my horse is an electric fence, and every time, or excuse me, if that trailer is an electric fence, okay. and every time he gets close to that trailer, he starts having that little bit of resistance. So then here we start turning the electricity on the electric fence by whacking him. Mm-hmm. So it's like, see, I told you, if I got that close, I'm going to get shocked. So the next time <laughs> he stops six feet away. And then we're saying, well, I was so close while I go, whack, 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 get up there closer. <laughs> right. So now the horse is thinking, well, they just moved that electric fence six foot six even foot. further <laughs> from the trailer. Oh, and before long, you step on the horse sees the trailer and he jerks away from you and runs away. And we're like, why is that happening? And, you know, from the things that I've learned from EBH, it's real simple while it's while it's happening, mm-hmm. and you can relate that to, to riding. Uh, a, a good example, I'm just I'll say this one real quick, is say a person's riding along and they go across a jump, and the horse starts bolting when he goes across a jump. Well, the first thing the human does is okay. As soon as you hit the ground, I'm going to stop you. So the human comes up pretty hard in the horse's face. So now the second time around the jump, the horse says man, I got hit as soon as I went mm-hmm. across that jump. I'm going to go a little faster and see if oh. I can keep from getting hit. So the horse goes a little faster and the person hits a little harder and says, don't you understand? If you jump across this and bolt, I'm going to hit you in the face. So the horse, next, the third time around, he says, I have really got to cut through here because <laughs> something over there is knocking the daylights out of me. So he's mm-hmm. trying to avoid that and evade that. He doesn't relate it to, okay, it's on the other side of the jump. So I just won't do the jump. The jump had nothing to do with it. It's the landing on the other side. Right. And the important thing that I see about that is that the rider is training the horse to bolt more and more. He's he's training the horse, but he's training the horse to do something that he doesn't want to do because he doesn't understand how the horses think. And that's why we're really excited about going to Durango and figuring out more. Because we owe it to the horse to to try and learn their language a little bit, to try and learn 
what makes them feel comfortable and what makes them tick and, and how they learn. You know, we look across and we see the struggles that some people have with their horses. And I'm so envious for the heart of some people because they stay in the game. They struggle and struggle and struggle and they're still staying in the game where, you know, I I think I I like to think I have a lot of determination, but sometimes I think I would have, I would have give up (laughs) if I'm struggling as hard as some people are struggling. I think I would just give up and quit, (laughs) but you know, I just, I'm so envious of those people that, that struggle so hard. They want it so bad. And that's what really tickles me to death when I can step in there and help them and let them see that, yes, your struggles will pay off. Let's just get you to think a different way. Yeah. Speaking of that, we have an ask the trainer section. We've got some questions that we usually get from listeners, although we've kind of gone through them all. By the way, anybody wants to ask a trainer, you can email us at john at woepodcast.com. But in lieu of a, of a listener question, Renee has a question for you that maybe you can help her out with. What do you say? I'll give it a shot. All right. This was on our trail ride Tuesday morning, and I, I struggled a little bit between two different concepts. I was trying to make the wrong thing hard and the right thing easy. And I'm, I'm weighing that against the concept of consistency. My horse was trotting faster than I wanted him to because the other horses were up ahead. And it was a narrow trail. I was doing one rain stops, one on each side. He does those very well. And then I'd set him right off on the trot again. And it only took about three of those. And he slowed down to a nice, comfortable pace and we carried on. Then he sped up again, and I shouldered him in and out on the narrow trail, and that didn't work quite as well. And then later I was saying to myself, well, should I just have kept doing the same thing? Was this inconsistency going to confuse him? Well, let's let's look at a horse, and let's look at the kind of horse that we have first to decide some horses I can do things that increases energy that I can get and it'll make the horse seek out what I want. And some horses I need to decrease energy to get what I want. Because if it's a horse, if he's wanting to catch up because he's afraid or he's really herd bound or he's uh, got a lack of confidence in being out by himself or his brain is focused on the horse as opposed to you, All of those things are this big, huge magnet trying to draw him away, right? Mm -hmm. Trying Mm -hmm. to draw him up into the other horses. Now, if you've got a horse that's got a whole lot of anxiety and you do a one-rein stop and he stops and then he looks up and sees those horses, are those horses getting further away? Right. Yes. And that's going to say, oh, my gosh, i got to take off. Now, he's being the good little uh, horse and he's stopping just like you ask. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as you release that rain, he says, oh, my gosh, I got to go. We got to catch up, Renee. Renee, do you have no <laughs> idea what's out in these woods? <laughs> so here it's hurry, hurry, hurry. I, I kind of have to, you know, know that horse a little bit. Is he doing is he catching up just because everybody's walking fast and, mm-hmm. and we want to work along together? So then I says, OK, before I can start doing anything. That, and I'm not going to use the word a pressure. 
And pressure is nothing more than asking something of the horse. So, you know, pressure can be a left leg, a right leg, a little bit of left leg and left rein, checking the right rein and asking that horse to, you know, give me a lateral movement going across or maybe setting that horse up for that shoulder in, shoulder out. All of those things are resistance because I'm using both reins. And when the horse has a little bit of anxiety and you use both reins, what would that do to that anxiety? It would increase it, I'm sure. Would you create more anxiety with two reins or one rein? Two. Definitely two. two. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's why one rein was working for you better than two reins. Okay. So when you started picking him up on two reins, now he's getting like, hey, I'm getting just a little bit bothered. And then when you picked him up with two reins and you added a little leg to him, Mm-hmm. And maybe his brain wasn't quite focused in on Renee as much as it was, hey, the guys are up there. <laughs> and now he's feeling this thing that's not quite as direct as saying, would you do a one range stop, which he's probably done one million of them. And he mm-hmm. says, oh, I know what that is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's not so much the consistency, it's the amount of resistance that you might not want to give to an anxious horse. Exactly. Yeah. And and you can take, I'll put this in, into something. Have you ever started a horse from scratch, put the first ride on a horse? I have. I haven't. John has, yeah. Okay, John. What's the number one rule do not do on a first ride? The number one rule that you do not do well? I had a whole lot of things going through my head on that <laughs> first ride. Was, I'll help but, you out. So I'm in the round pen and I'm getting him moving out. Maybe I'm making that little transition from a walk to the trot. And he starts getting just a little bit bothered. He starts getting a little nervous. Well, my instinct is to what? Shut him down. Shut him down, right. Now he says, okay, I got just a little bit bothered. I don't know what's waggling around on top of me. And I don't know what's whopping me in my sides. But I just got a little bothered. And something is making me stay right here. And whatever that is, it is probably going to eat me. (laughs) So you just increased his anxiety when you picked up on him. And it caused him to get just a little stronger. And unless we've done a thousand just standing and flexing and flexing and flexing. And, you know, most of us trainers don't have time to do that. You know, when we're trying to progress a lot of horses through. So the simplest thing is. You just go ahead and go and sort this out. So you just soften up on that horse, soften up on your body, and that horse is going to take three or four or five steps, and he's going to go, we got away, didn't we, John? Boy, I'm glad you (laughs) stayed with me. When that horse gets a little bothered, you just let him move on out on his own, and you let him sort it out, and he'll sort it out. There, There you go. Good advice. But, you know, if you if you take that concept from his very first ride, how easy it is to create that added anxiety, even when something a little bit bothered him, and then you just shut him down and says, I'm going to make you stand here and get eaten by what just scared you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So the same thing when you picked up with two reins, Renee, and you mm-hmm. says, okay, I'm going to make you do this. And one rein, or a horse can still, he can still move his feet in a circle. Mother Nature said, in concern, move your feet. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And so he moved his feet in a circle till he came to a one-way stop. So he went from, um, I'm a little uncertain to, oh, I know what that means, to, oh, now my brain is back with Renee. I'm supposed to come to a stop and relax. Mm-hmm. And then when you do train and you're, you say so you're training your Mustang, like when you competed, you're training your Mustang in your arena and you're doing stuff. When you eventually take them out of that arena or round pen, there's a, there's a whole world out there that they're going to get really anxious about. What method do you use when you take them out of the arena? That's a, that's a really good question, but I want you to now put it back in the terms of where has that horse spent most of his time before I got involved outside out with the deer and out with the squirrels and out with the birds and out with this and that. So if I stay out of this guy's way, he will probably relax more out there than he would in a round pen or he would in an arena in an environment that makes him somewhat claustrophobic because that's Mm -hmm. his world out there. So if I ride him with just a suggestion, Hey, how about let's go in this way? And how about let's go in that way? And, how about let's just stay in on this trail? He's not going to take off running. I've never had one to take off running because he's going to do what he does on his own. He's going to meander around. Right. He's only going to get anxious if I cause him to get anxious by putting control on him and putting too much control and saying, hey, you're walking a little too fast. And you see that ditch right there? We're going through it, but we're going to go through it my way. And he's right. like, Oh, no, we aren't. I've been crossing dishes <laughs> long before you were born, Jim. I can do this. And so who is it for me to tell him how to do things? Now, uh-huh. maybe over time, I would rather he didn't jump the ditch, so we'll come back and we'll do the ditch again and again and again mm-hmm. and again. And if he jumps it 72 times, the 73rd time, he's probably going to walk through it. Right. And then when he walks through it a couple of times, I'm going to say, see, that's what I wanted. So I'm not going to make him walk through it. I'm going to let him do it enough to where he says, well, this ain't working. Let me try walking through it and see what happens. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, we got to leave it when I walk through it. Yay. (laughs) So, you know, it's it's human intervention that causes the horse to get concerned. Any horse on his own, you put him in the pasture that's got a creek in it, and he's going to cross that creek 100 times. Yes. Yeah. No problem. You put a human on him and you start controlling him. And he says, you know, I can drown in water and you've got so much control on me. Something could happen. So it's yep. about turn them loose, let them sort it out. They'll sort it out. They're, they're amazing animals in the way they can sort things out. And then we mm-hmm. just start, you know, kind of molding it to what we want, the way we really want it to be. But we mold it just like you would mold a piece of clay, just a little bit at a time, real slow, real easy, keep kneading it, keep working with it. And before long, you just made something really nice with the clay. Same thing with a horse. Sounds good. Well, we could talk to you for hours and hours, but unfortunately, <laughs> we probably shouldn't. We can in Colorado. Yeah, that's right. We can right, when we're in. Right. Yeah, because yeah. we'll be there. And. Uh, if people want to find out more about you and uh, the Barty Horsemanship, where can we send them? Our website is bartyhorsemanship.com. Mm-hmm. 
And also on Facebook is Bar T Horsemanship. Okay. And we're a, I think you call it a like page on bar, on uh, Facebook. Okay. So you just pull us up, Bar T Horsemanship, and like that page. We do a lot of little um, tips, training tips on there. I do a lot of little videos, especially with, um, I won't say problem horses, but horses are, that are having a difficult time in mm-hmm. the things that we're trying to work with them. I always do something on Facebook sharing those uh, with people so that they can see the experiences. And, you know, I, I can honestly say there's not a horse that we've ever turned away. And I think, I know I'm the only trainer in North Carolina that can say that because <laughs> when we look at it, the difficult horses is how we learn. You know, as yeah. a trainer, the horses that make me come in at night and sit and think and process, those are the horses that I learn from. And not to say every horse doesn't teach me a little bit because they all do and they still will. And I'm sure they will until the day that I die. But those difficult horses are the ones that really can can just like, oh, that was so black and white. Why didn't I get that? Yes. Yeah. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Jim. Great. Thank you so much for joining us on the Woe Podcast. And we look forward to seeing you in Durango. Can't wait. Well, we can't wait either. It is going to be so exciting. And again, I want to reach out to everybody out there again. And I do want to send an invitation, especially all the folks, I think, in Colorado. They're eligible for a just a one-day portion of it, so it's a reduced price just for one day. You know, the talent that is going to be there, it, it just amazes me. I, I tell folks that I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd get to stand on the same podium that these same guys stood at. So uh, I'm really, really, really excited about it. And there's so much that everybody will have to take away from it. Great. Thanks so much. And we'll see you in Colorado. Thank you, Jim. All right, Renee. It was a pleasure to meet with you folks. Yeah, Renee, he had you in stitches. You were giggling through the whole thing. (laughs) I know. (laughs) We want to thank Jim Thomas of Bar T Horsemanship. You can learn more about Jim at bartehorsemanship.com or Barty Horsemanship on Facebook or at the BHP Summit in Durango, Colorado, October 8th through 10th. We'll have all the links in the show notes so you can find them there. We talk to a lot of trainers. If you have a question about your horse and want some free advice, you can leave your question on our listener line. It is 661-368-5530. Or email John at woepodcast.com. Use the Apple Podcast app to subscribe to the Woe Podcast and you'll never miss an episode. You can also subscribe on Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. They're all free. And all episodes are on woepodcast.com. Visit woepodcast.com and sign up for our emails to stay up to date. Have a suggestion for a guest, a comment? Just email John at woepodcast.com. The Woe Podcast is produced by John and Renee Hare with occasional research support by Robin Kane and support from our listeners. If you would like to support the show, visit woepodcast.com and click on the Patreon button. Thanks again for listening to our show and sharing it with your friends and riding buddies. Until next time, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>